0: I'm Brett from Heinemann. Three years ago, I started out this episode of the podcast by saying not talking about racism is not a solution. We sought to have a conversation about dismantling racism in education after a Heinemann Fellows panel on the subject. As we listen to this conversation through the lens of 2020, it is now not enough to talk about dismantling racism. Rather, we must take actions to be anti-racist. This podcast features authors Sara K. Ahmed, author of Being the Change, Dr. Sonia Cherry Paul, who most recently co wrote Breathing New Life into Book Clubs, and The Educator's Guide to Stamped Racism, Anti Racism, and You, as well as Cornelius Minor, the author of We Got This. Since this conversation first aired in 2017, all of these authors have published books, podcasts, talks, and professional development events and diversity, equity, inclusion, and being anti-racist. Before we begin, a message to my fellow white educators. We ask you to do the work that's necessary to disrupt whiteness and white supremacy within yourselves, your classrooms, and schools. We ask white educators to commit to doing this work now, and long after the media coverage of this latest viral bout of racism. Seek out the work of these authors and other indigenous, black, and other people of color. Follow them on social media. Support them by buying their work and attending their events, amplifying their voices, and never stop educating yourself. Here now is our conversation from 2017 with Sarah K. Ahmed, Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul, and Cornelius Minor.
1: One way that we can define racism is going beyond this notion of racism being uh, simply conscious hate, that it is um, individual acts of hatred or bullying, but to think about racism systemically and the ways in which um, it really is the fog over all of our lives, um, and making a list of those things. so. Um, for me, as an educator, racism looks like certain people's stories being included in curriculum and in texts that we read, while others are being omitted. Um, racism looks like um, telling, you know, children of color or teaching children to color to of color to celebrate and honor um, men, white men in particular, throughout history who were racist um, and oppressors. Um, racism looks like teaching children that uh, race doesn't matter when in fact race does matter, to borrow from Dr. Cornel West. Um, And so when we teach kids these sort of canned narratives that race doesn't matter, we're all the same, um, we're all equal, there really needs to be a paradigm shift where we're teaching our children race does matter in this society. It shouldn't But it does and for some of your peers and for some um, citizens they're having a very different experience because of the color of their skin and in our household we see that as unjust and unfair and we are pushing back against that but it's important for you to know that as you are going to school and um, celebrating the uniquenesses of your peers that racism is real and it does matter in this society because there are people who make it matter and I wish that was the narrative that parents were taking in their homes and then teachers can pick up in schools um, in developmentally appropriate ways to help kids understand this.
0: And Cornelius, you, you talked about how you know we need to dismantle the assumptions of racism we typically think of it as acts of violence or acts of hate at one point i th- i can't remember who said it somebody said there's an insistence of innocence among white people mm. and you you helped us think through the the systems in place that allow racism to continue the systems in place that are racism can you talk a little bit about that
2: and yeah i'm really into the idea that systems can be examined and we can look at them and take them apart and add parts to it. And so when I say system, I'm looking specifically at the rules, the policies, the procedures, the customs that govern a specific place. Um, And so when I look at racism, just to give it some historical context, um, racism is the ideology that justified the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. And, um, And it is human nature to be, or really, if you look at Newtonian physics, it's it's natural to be at rest or in motion, or it's natural to be at stasis. And so, when something is not quite balanced, something's wrong. Um, and so, we always want to move toward balance. And so when something is wrong, you have to justify why the thing is wrong. And so when you think about transatlantic slave trade, Mm -hmm. like, um, that was a vast wrong. And so those people in power had to figure out ways to justify how can this thing be wrong without outrage? And so this invention that there are people called black Mm -hmm. or there are people who are Brown and those people are less than us. Um, and so that ideology pervasive, 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 but, and what happens is that ideology, it, um, it infiltrates systems like schools, like healthcare, like government. And so what happens when you take an ideology like racism and apply it to an institution like school, what ends up happening is that institution produces unequal outcomes for specific subsets of people, um, specifically like black and brown children. And so given the equal investment of time, energy, love black and brown children net less of a gain from education or from school than their white peers because this system is in place that guarantees that that will be the outcome. Um, and so when I think about then what are the constituent parts of the system? The constituent parts of the system might be things like school discipline, Or what counts as work and so in some schools if only writing counts as work the kids who are culturally predisposed to speaking are locked out of success within that system Mm -hmm. and that happens consistently over time and so even though there is no ill will or ill intent in that situation because the very mechanism of what is success and what is not success Mm -hmm. is like set up against me I can never do well within that system and so what happens is so the kid who's predisposed to speaking culturally nets less in that system and then we point at that kid and say there's something wrong with you there's a deficit there when really it's the system that didn't allow that kid opportunities to be successful in the way that you know are really important to that kid's particular culture or that kid's particular like racial or ethnic background.
1: And I think it's also important to point out that um, the whole notion of schooling in terms of you were talking about intention, um, the whole intention of schooling was never to include black and brown children, Mm -hmm. um, to always exclude them and to make sure that they didn't have access to education. So to see what you're describing playing out in schools doesn't surprise me. And in fact, I feel that we often try to give people credit and say, you know, but we have the best intentions when, in fact, the intentions were not the best. They aren't the best, and they were never the best. So, um, you know, when we think about what racism is, it's this whole architect of schooling, which was never, ever um, designed to include brown and black bodies from the beginning. So I feel like there needs to be an incredible um, overhaul and in, in transformation of schooling in order for everyone's um, talents to be noticed and for everyone to be considered or have the available
0: ability to be successful. Courtney, has, I want to go back to a story that I've heard you tell a couple of times regarding your wife mm-hmm. and the call center that she works at, and I'd like you to sort of, if you don't mind, share that story and connect that to this conversation and its, its importance. Yeah.
2: One of the things, um, and I have the most amazing wife on the planet, um, and, <laughs> and she spends a few evenings a week um, at a sexual violence call center, and that's you pretty much you wait by the phone all night and people call in, and, and we don't really talk about it because it's a confidentiality thing. So mm-hmm. like, I don't know what she does all night. But mm-hmm. when she volunteered there, like people would call in and she would work people through problems, through crises, and um, and it was a nighttime thing. So she would come home very very early in the morning and there was one specific morning that she came home and and she was distressed because usually she never wakes me up she just kind of comes and it's a thing that I acknowledge but we don't really talk about it because we can't but Mm -hmm. this one particular night she said to me she's like you know Cornelius I really need you to talk to your guy friends about sexual violence, Um, and I need you to talk to them specifically about rape." Um, And that just struck me as an odd request Mm -hmm. early in the morning, and I was just like, well, you know, it's not a guy thing, like, why why is this something that I need to bring to my circle of guy friends? And she looked at me and she was like, you know, Cornelius, in this community, you're an influential athlete, you're a teacher, a lot of people look at you and sexual violence is not a woman problem like women didn't create it women do not benefit from it um and so it is a man problem like men perpetuate it men created it men benefit you know and so if you're not talking to your guy friends about this then you are complicit in sexual violence. And um and that just really struck me like you know as her husband, as a man and so when I think about then and I and I kind of transfer that then to the conversation around race that um that racism isn't something that was created by people of color. It Mm -hmm. isn't something that is perpetuated by people of color. It isn't something that people of color benefit from. And so when I think about solutions to racism, like people of color can't be the only folks doing the work. It has to be white folks Mm -hmm. doing the work that, you know, if I look at again, like sexual violence, it has to be men standing up, speaking out like, and not allowing it to exist in our friendships and in our communities. And then the same applies to racism, that it has to be white folks saying that this has no place in my community
0: so we have to get uncomfortable with these conversations we can't we have to live in that uncomfortable place help us figure out or talk us through that uncomfortable place we need to get to
3: well I think one of the things that we have to really face first is a lot of there's a lot of truths right so there's um there's a powerful and palpable silence about race and racism right? we're silent because we don't know where to start or you know, we've heard an educator say we only get through 50% of the conversation and don't know where to go. Um, I think that there's things that there's a multitude of things that get in the way. But one of those ways to just begin to a difficult conversation is to say, OK, I know my truth. I know my experience is truth, but I have to be accepting and understanding and listening to the experience of others and also take those as truth, right? Like your lived experience is also a truth, just as mine is. Mm -hmm. And until we can even do that, um, we won't get past a lot of that barrier or a lot of that silence.
0: Not doing anything is a choice of doing nothing, you know, and and to not have those conversations because out of fear that we will say the wrong thing, especially when white people have that fear and they're sitting there and they're struggling with what to say, how to have that conversation choosing not to have those conversations is a choice to do nothing. So how can we, and and I want to preface this with a quote that I've heard both you and Sonia say, you know, just because I'm this person, that doesn't make me the diversity expert. And I think that's really important for all people to understand.
3: I think um, I can name that because it's something that I I struggle with and if you're on a panel, or you're being asked by a school, right, or someone to come and talk to us about race, you know, Sarah, come, t- can you come talk to our staff about race? Um, I often question why that is, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't always understand it because because I'm brown, it does not make me a diversity expert. It doesn't make me an expert on race. It, I have lived experiences, mm-hmm. um, but really, what what I'm what I hope I can bring is the the fact that I'm becoming increasingly more comfortable with the discomfort of having these conversations. So I I will come to your school as that to help support everyone having those conversations, but um, not the expert because I'm brown. And I think it's another way to sort
1: of shift the responsibility of dismantling racism on the people who are affected by racism. So two years ago, there was an incident in my school and I reported it to my um, superintendent who happens to be white. And he, his response to me in written format was, I'm sure that that was awful for you. Why don't you go and tell the high school students how that made you feel? And my response was, nope, nope. (laughs) The onus is not on me because I happen to be the black person and in this district and this incident related to uh, name calling. um, And using the N word and I felt like um, this is something we need to tackle as a community, not. Individual that one individual who happens to be African American should go speak out against it, and that was one of the reasons why I started a committee called the Race Matters Committee in my district, where I just got a couple of colleagues who, you know, could come together and talk about that incident and also other issues that had been happening in our district, and um, and I just saw really clearly that I needed to surround myself with allies. Um, because I really felt like I was going to have to quit my job and leave my district because it felt so isolating. You know, this is your problem, Sonia. You, you go handle it. Um, so I think it, it, the onus is on all of us to do this work. Um, we need um, to make sure that brown and black voices are heard and that they are at the center of that. But we also need white folks to educate themselves and to um, to to learn what they need to do to partner with everyone around them to tackle this problem and not just rely on the people who happen to be um, affected by it
0: and you've also said too it's important to not lose sight of racism and attach other things to it and constantly attach other things to it, where it then gets lost and forgotten can you talk a little bit about how important that is but also the responsibility of the community to support in that work right.
1: so i work in a district that's predominantly white teachers and white students and Um, I've noticed that whenever we come around to have a purposeful conversation around diversity, specifically race and racism, it sort of uh, segues into um, sexism or um, disabilities and learning challenges and and what I've called sort of the safe zones Mm -hmm. for the people in my district. And the one thing that always falls to the wayside is racism. I think it is very challenging for people to have these conversations for a litany of reasons. They're they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, or they are um, just woefully unprepared to have these conversations, and so they don't. And they feel the best thing to do is to say nothing, that to, in fact, engage in these conversations is somehow polarizing and divisive. Um, So it's best that we don't talk about this at all. And so, um, again, it was important for me to say, no, 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 there's going to be a committee and we're just going to specifically focus on, on race and racism.
0: I want to talk about some things that we can do as educators. But before I go there, I feel it's important that we need to go back and examine white privilege. It's a tough phrase to say. It's a tough idea to get out there and have conversations around. And one thing, uh, Sonia, you've taught me is, um, we sometimes will attach privilege to economics and that is an element of white privilege as well. How can we have these conversations about white privilege in a way where they're open, they're honest, we are uncomfortable, but we're moving forward in our knowledge and we're not Sitting in ignorance around it.
1: So I think one of the best ways to talk about white privilege is to say, aside from economics, now that's a very real privilege. <laughs> we can't we can't pretend that it doesn't um, it doesn't exist. We can just certainly look at our neighborhoods and we can look at the schools and we can compare them to other schools. So, but if we just push that to the side, what are the other? What are all of the other ways in which privilege lives? So the privilege of being able to go to a library and find a book that has a character on the cover that looks like you and who has... Um, a book that has a story that is about you or um, as simple as, you know, watching a commercial and finding a product to shampoo your hair. Um, to, to learn about that from watching TV, which is not an experience that I have. I have to, 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 to take other measures to find out about different products for my hair. As a black woman, um, I don't have the privilege of just watching network TV and seeing a commercial that is talking about, you know, people like me who have hair like me Um, so in all these you know big and small ways um, this is what privilege is and 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 probably in recent times the most um, the most read uh, piece of writing on privilege is by Peggy McIntosh. But there've been a lot of brown and black folks talking (laughs) about privilege for years. So we should probably go back and figure out who they are. But, you know, that that's an entry point for some people where she talks about unpacking her invisible knapsack, like, you know, being able to find a band-aid that looks like your your flesh color. And I've been seeing a lot of Um, discussions about ballet dancers now that we have Misty Copeland in the spotlight and people there there are brown and black people who are trying to create companies where uh, the point shoes even are coming in different skin tones because historically there's just one and it doesn't look like mine Um, so I think we could have these you know really obvious conversations about privilege that would then help people you know, help raise their consciousness. Like, oh, it's not just about economics. Again, economics is a big part of it, but it's it's all of these other ways that um, I think people don't think about. And I want to add something that I heard
0: today in our conversations. It costs white people nothing to speak up, mm-hmm. and I I felt that was an incredibly powerful statement. I don't I don't remember wh- who said it and what at what point it came up, but it just that really struck me as important.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's exciting too because um. A lot of times we assume that these conversations have to be hard and one of the things that I always want to recognize is that one of the things that solidifies friendships is shared struggle mm-hmm. you know like I'm sitting next to Vicky here and like I like legit love her um, and, I, and I think that a lot of that is rooted in that like we in the times that we spent together we've talked about like really meaningful things and so like To look at these conversations as hard conversations is one thing, but to look at these conversations that are gonna solidify friendships, to look at these conversations that are gonna like strengthen professional bonds, to look at these conversations and say these are conversations that are gonna sharpen my ability to teach kids, I think that's the win. That no, it's not gonna be a difficult conversation for the sake of difficult conversation. This is gonna be a difficult conversation that makes me feel really excited about Mm -hmm. being around my boss, or this is gonna be a difficult conversation. You know, and when we think about difficulty like I'm a skateboarder and you do a difficult thing because it's going to pay off mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you don't just mm-hmm. do a difficult thing for the sake of doing a difficult thing so I look at a set of stairs and I'm like I'm going to jump down those stairs because somebody's going to think I'm cool Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and, um, and I think that that's important you know that this doesn't always have to be heavy dark storm clouds this can be something I'm going to engage in this thing with my colleague because I love her or I'm going to engage in this thing with my colleague because I think that like we can be better colleagues to each <laughs> other if we do this hard thing together and so always just putting humanity at the center of all of this that yes I'm gonna do this hard thing but this hard thing is going to have like real like social payoff in terms of like how effectively I'm able to reach mm-hmm. all students and then like um, kind of collegial payoff and how well I'm able to like work with my team
1: and I think because and- it's hard we tend to shy away from it but But just like with skateboarding and doing that really cool jump, it gets easier (laughs) the more practice you have. So we can get better at having these conversations about race and racism. They can be more fluid. But the way for that to happen is not to not have them, (laughs) Exactly. like to have them more. And, you know, I was in my work, I've been reading a lot of research and there was a study that said that 75 percent of white families never or almost never talk to their children about race. And, you know when we just think about the intent behind that, where whatever it is, but if we, you know, just ask ourselves, is there any evidence that this assumption works that our kids are gonna be more tolerant and more acceptance if accepting if we don't talk about race? Mm-hmm. Where is the evidence for that? It's certainly not, you know, true in 2017. It's not true in 2014. If we all just don't talk about it, we're going to have these children that grow up to be really amazing. And that's not what they do. They grow up and they take these silences and they try to attach some sort of meaning to it because they've been forced to sort of work it out themselves.
3: And wouldn't you guys say that really means too that we don't have to have the answers when we approach the conversation right like you can approach the conversation with humility like Mm -hmm. I think as a society we're always looking to have the answer at the end of a conversation but if we leave that conversation asking more questions then like democracy can evolve right like we yeah. can progress in our democracy if we are asking more questions mm-hmm. than having to be confident that we have the answers to everything yeah
4: but i think this is vicky the white person at the table who's <laughs> feeling like i need to be a little braver and speak up this is what it sounds a white person sounds like who's trying to learn to find words um and participating the, in these conversations but um, you know, just connecting to, uh, Sarah, your <clears throat> observation that many of us are reluctant to speak up because we feel like we don't have the expertise. Mm-hmm. I think this is a particular hurdle for teachers mm-hmm. um, who really feel like, you know, they have to have the background knowledge and the authority. Um, and when, when we know um, as a, a publisher of progressive uh, re- resources for teachers that so much of the work is about creating a safe space mm-hmm. for uh, the conversation to happen and it's really important for the teacher to show up as a student too and it's okay. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity uh, for you to learn alongside uh, alongside your students. I'm sitting here at this table and I'm I've learned so much. Um, and uh, you know look for ways like I'm, I'm doing in this conversation <laughs> to insert to practice Um, and uh, you know acknowledge where you are um, and make a commitment to moving from there forward One of the things where, one of the reasons I'm at this table Mm -hmm. is because as a publisher of professional resources for teachers, we recognize that we have a special obligation in this conversation. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the kinds of books that we're putting out, who are the children that are represented in the photographs in those books, Mm -hmm. Um, how are we talking about children, Um, how are we representing all populations of children, who are the teachers that get to to be in these conversations Um, and you know we're also looking at um, our the makeup of our team here at at Heinemann and we're wanting it to be more reflective of uh, the broader array of humanity. Uh, We want to bring all of those perspectives in-house to inform uh, everything that Mm -hmm. that, um, we do. So uh, it's a learning conversation for us, um, and we feel our responsibility. And uh, we also understand that a lot of teachers um, perceive us as having a lot of authority. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we better study up and find and find some words. Before we wrap this up, I want to give any of our listeners some next steps, some strategies,
0: some things they can do tomorrow or do today, depending on when they're listening. Um, Sara, certainly something you said at one point, read a book from an author that doesn't look like you. Mm-hmm what what more what else what what other small steps can we do and how can those lead towards bigger steps
3: yeah I mean I think that there's again this this helplessness of um, looking to brown educators educators of color to say like what resources do you have what do you need we 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 need those right Mm -hmm. and so my response is usually just read something by someone that doesn't look like you listen to something you know that by someone that doesn't look listen to another voice Um, that's that's just one takeaway these guys have
2: and there's there's a moment um a few years ago I don't know if you remember the Sarah. like I was really nervous I had to teach this like Institute and SAR came on the first day of the Institute and she just sat in my class so that I wouldn't be scared and um, and and she sat there she sat there she sat there and she left early and when she left she left like a Batman action figure on my <laughs> desk um, and and it was really <laughs> perplexing because I didn't see her do it and, um, and so, so I'm in the middle of teaching this thing that I'm really scared to teach and I go to the desk and there's like a Batman figure and I just kind of picked it up, and I looked at it and then I turned to the class and I'm like, who did this? <laughs> and and that was like the first moment where I allowed myself to be vulnerable. Like mm-hmm. I, I was carrying all this stress with me mm-hmm. that whole morning. Mm-hmm. But then just asking a simple question and not knowing the answer and not expecting to ever arrive at one. Mm-hmm. And so if I were to give teachers any kind of next steps, it's like be public about asking questions and don't expect mm-hmm. to arrive at an answer. Mm-hmm. That it is totally OK to be vulnerable. It is totally OK to have a question and it's totally okay to not find the answer today. Um, And what was really interesting in the group when I held the Batman figure, (laughs) like we legitimately didn't know who did it, but everybody had these (laughs) theories and and it kind of brought us all together. you know. And so the idea that you're not gonna solve racism in a 45 minute class period, but people are gonna have theories, people are gonna have Mm -hmm. ideas, Mm -hmm. and they're gonna be together. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really, really important.
1: Yeah. And I, I would say that, you know, racism, it's perpetuated by all who do not actively work to dismantle this system. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens a lot is, you know, there are these emotions, whether it's shame or frustration or anger. And there is this sort of idea that, you know we shouldn't have those feelings. Let's instead be calm and patient and peaceful. And maybe it's the revolutionary in me, but I would like us to lean into those feelings of anger and frustration and shame and um, you know just confusion and to allow that to galvanize us to action um, toward dismantling this system. Let's not be afraid of it. Let's channel it and then, and then act um, in ways that really help our kids and help ourselves and will help the world.
0: Our thanks to authors Sarah K. Ahmed, Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul, and Cornelius Minor for allowing Heinemann to rerun this conversation today. Again, we reiterate the message that we said at the start of this podcast, seek out the work of these authors and other indigenous, black, and other people of color. Follow them on social media. Support them by buying their work and attending their events. Amplify their voices. And never stop educating yourself.